0: Hey everyone, and welcome to the Media People Podcast. I'm your host, Victor Genova. I'm pretty excited because this is our inaugural Media People Podcast, the pilot episode, if you will, if anyone from TV land is listening in. The formula is simple. Each week, we're going to sit down and chat with some of the best and brightest from the media industry and get a chance to hear their story, where they're from, where they are now, and what happened in between. Before we get started with our first guest, I wanted to give a shout out to Zaravan Kavari, one of the most talented graphic designers in Toronto. He designed the logo you see on our SoundCloud page, and that logo is only the tip of what he can do. Websites, digital portfolios, digital creative, etc. If you need someone for the aforementioned services, then please feel free to send him an email at zarvan.kavari at gmail.com. That's Z-A-R-V-A-N dot K-H-A-V-A-R-I at gmail.com. Our very first guest is Hannah Savage, VP, Head of Strategy, Head of Oss Media in Toronto. Hannah's held senior positions at major media firms on both sides of the Atlantic and undertook some very intense charity work in South Africa before then. Uh, okay, before we get into everything, go right back to the past and talk about you know, where you were born and everything else. Uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, you were just recently promoted to VP, Head of Strategy.
1: Yes. What was that moment
0: like? Like, did someone come into your office and be like, you're a VP now? Was it something you were kind of jonesing for? Because a lot of people don't really see that moment, understanding how to get to that next level.
1: Um, well, it kind of been on cards for uh, a couple of months, been talking about it with my CEO and CFO and all that sort of stuff. And they knew it was something that I was wanting to happen at some point. I wanted to take more of a strategic, you know, managerial role in like guiding the company and where we wanted it to go. And thankfully, I think I got fairly lucky with people I was working with and everything else. And so the opportunity kind of came up. Um... And so, yeah, it was great. Tom kind of took me out for lunch and sort of said, would you like to? And he didn't actually ask me if I wanted to be a <laughs> VP. He just said, you are now VP. So I was like, okay, cool, great. Thank you.
0: So, I mean, looking at your resume, I've your LinkedIn profile. You've been with Havas for a very long time, and no, on two continents.
1: Yeah, yeah. I started out like um, seven years ago or something, I think, um, with Havas back in London. Um,
0: and you just kind of, because you've been like, you had like, I think it was something like three, no, no, five different positions with Havas between both countries. So you've really stuck with the country. That's something we don't see a lot of in this industry. Sorry, I hate to say that to anyone who's listening. It goes, no, I've stuck around with my company. It's true. People do jump around a lot, but you've got a lot of great growth within the company.
1: I think it's something that, especially in London, is very, very um, sought after. It's just, if you always know that if someone's been in, like, promoted internally, repeatedly, then they're hopefully worth something. Mm. Um, so, and, and they're, you know, a good prospect for the future. And to be honest with you, I just, I've kind of always liked Havas. It's been a fairly... Um, a lot has changed I mean we've gone through a thousand brand names but I think now we've finally settled on where the brand is and what we're doing as a company and everything under one roof and all that Um, but there's been enough challenges to keep me interested and each of the jobs has been slightly different and had its own set of challenges to keep me interested so it's been great
0: Okay, but uh, yeah, we mentioned two different continents and so that accent of yours, it's English Yes But
1: you weren't born (laughs) in England No, no, I was actually born in Hong Kong Crazy. Um, so
0: that was in, clearly when you was still under British rule and everything, because I mean, that only stopped, what, 15 years ago? Yeah, absolutely. You wouldn't know, be a VP at 15.
1: No, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. no I, my dad was with um, the British Navy and then uh, in a NATO posting, so we moved around probably sort of every year and a half to two years um, really? my entire life, um, up until my parents sort of made the decision to put all of us three kids into boarding school when we were... Well, I think my brothers were as young as six. I think I was about eleven, because they moved to America. So yeah, it was it was it was amazing. Got to see loads of the world, but um, it means we're a bit of a international student. So okay, but uh, how long were you then in Hong Kong for? Um, I was in Hong Kong for a huge amount of time, so only up until sort of, um, I've got a couple of early memories before we came back to England. Yeah, sure, okay. um, But then moved around a bit after that, so ended up in America, and uh, then I went to live in South Africa randomly by myself for a while as well. And then, yeah, got fed up in London and moved to Canada. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, what was life like here, life for you
1: in England growing up? Um, it was lovely. It's very quaint, rains a lot. Um, and yeah I, I mean I had an amazing family so we moved around a hell of a lot and that meant that I'm very very close to my family my brothers were my best friends and all that sort of stuff I know that sounds incredibly cheesy no 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 um, but yeah good thing have
0: be proud of it uh, okay so I wanted to just hang on to the, part of the fact that you were uh, uh, born in Hong Kong again so now that it's moved over to Chinese rule, and you were born there that are you a Chinese citizen, British citizen? <laughs> I mean, how does that work? It's kind of like, It seems like they might have handed you a second passport or citizenship certificate without even having to try or apply for it. Uh,
1: no, so what happens is when we handed it back, I mean, you know, the English basically sort of like said, okay, 2000, here you go, back, back it goes. Um, anyone who was born there was given the opportunity to actually um, apply for citizenship um, within a certain period of time. So yeah, able to do that and that was great.
0: Gotcha. Uh, talk about your time in boarding school. Because <clears coughs> a lot of people listening to this are probably thinking, was it anything like Harry Potter?
1: No, no, it really wasn't like Harry Potter. Um, we went to a forces school, so um, the three children and my dad was with the Navy. And one of the perks of that was that they paid for um, two-thirds of our tuition fees or else <laughs> there was no way my parents would have been able to afford. It was like buy, buy one, get two free,
0: gotcha.
1: basically. Is so, um, that what they typically
0: call grammar school?
1: Um, it's a really, really difficult one. Do you know what? Even I'm not entirely sure the differentiation between private, public and grammar schools back in England because it just seems to be... I'm sure someone can sort of, like, call in and tell us whether, you know, whether, what's what's the actual correct pronunciation. But, um, no, mine was a City of um, London Guild school, so we had a lot of Forces kids, and then we had a lot of kids who were out of um, slightly less, I suppose life-affirming situations in London, and they were taken away from, given their option, given the option of actually going to this public school, or private school, rather than actually being taken away and put into care. So they got to stay with their families.
0: Uh, is it safe to call you an army brat? Would you call yourself
1: that? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a Brit brat. That's what Brit. they used, yeah, that's what they used okay, to Brit call brats. us.
0: Uh, what kind of influence did that have on you? Because you always seem like, I mean, through your family, you were always arm's length away from the military. Was it a pretty political family? Did your dad do a good job of keeping that kind of politics?
1: Outside of it Well my dad always used to joke That he knew where all the nuclear warheads were But he was never allowed to tell us So I don't know how much truth there is to that statement Um, But um, No I mean it it was a really It was a really laid back family I mean my my dad was away a hell of a lot My mum was an absolute legend I still don't know how she did it She had three children under five you know, And my dad was away at sea a lot Like Mm. up to sort of six months Seven months, eight months stretches Without seeing him So she was just an incredible woman. But um, yeah, no, I wouldn't say that they were actually very, very laid back. And the military was not, it's kind of part of our lives in the fact that, you know, there's a lot of, actually, my brother's gone into it. So we're now fifth generation Mm -hmm. Navy, the savages. But yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: you never had any ambitions to jump into it yourself?
1: <laughs> my dad desperately wanted, I think, all three of us to join the Navy. Um, but it was kind of always the deal with my brothers and I that one of us would do it kind of unspoken. And then when gotcha. when Alex said, he's a middle brother, when Alex said he was going to sort of do it, Ben and I just sort of breathed a sigh of relief and then went off and did our own thing. So gotcha. it's great.
0: So I guess that would have been the time you were finishing high school then. It was kind of like, do I go to university, do I take a gap year, or do I go into the military? You chose not to go towards the military. so. And
1: what happened after that well it was, it was funny you mentioned that so originally I wasn't sure what I wanted to do um I was a typical 12 year old girl who sort of loved anything that moved in terms of horses and dogs and all that sort of stuff so originally wanted to be a vet and then you know my mum just turned around to me and said don't, don't worry darling Look, you know we, we don't expect you to go to university like your brothers and that was of course a red rag to a bull um and she didn't mean it like that she just wanted me to be happy but it meant that I then strove really really hard to get to university and do what I wanted to do um Sadly, I wasn't clever enough to be a vet, so um, ended up going and trying saving the world. So I did, well, so double kind of degree, so psychology and sociology, and then um, uh, geography with environmental sciences. Yeah, I noticed that on
0: your LinkedIn profile. So, tell us a little bit about what you were doing globally with that globally like, like you said you were off to save oh world, yeah, like. yeah. <laughs> I, mean,
1: <laughs> I had like, grand illusions of the twenty, 21 year old who's just come out learning about all about the problems of female empowerment in, in Africa so um, I disappeared off by myself for for a year well actually with um chap I was with at the time a good friend of mine now uh, we went um, around Africa he was into wine so he went and did that and I was into saving the world so I have so got two people here yeah.
0: like I'm going to explore the vineyards and you're just like no no, no we've got people to Safe here.
1: Absolutely, and so we came to Cape Town. That was like where we wanna wanted to stay for a bit.
0: What was being in what was South Africa like? Because I mean, that's a pretty like if you read about them in the news, They're a pretty polarizing nation. I mean, how long ago were you there?
1: Um, goodness me, I was back there. It was twenty one. So yeah, eleven years ago. 12 eleven years, years ago. ago. So yep. they were still
0: just. Kind of want to say maybe about 15 years removed from apartheid. So, what yeah. was it like being there at that time where they were trying to grow up in Russia? I want to say Nelson Mandela is probably on his second or maybe third term as president.
1: Uh, yes. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, he, it was it was weird because everyone, I think, every, including my parents, were really scared about us going off and doing this sort of little adventure for bars, but. I never had a single problem out there. Like, everyone was so welcoming and so sweet and um, sort of, you know, yeah, inviting us into their homes and everything else. Um, We never had any problems. I mean, I think that there's a, it gets a bad rap um, for being unsafe and, you know, a scary destination. And yet, you know, as long as you're not an idiot, don't go walking around drunk at 3 a.m. in the morning. You know, as long as you watch your back, you're absolutely great. And, you know, I mean, there there was still a certain level of um, racism. Mm. most certainly um, going on um, there was very much the white leak and then you know the black leak and then I had to learn as well like what you call people because out there if you call people you know uh, black then that's correct or you call them brown that's correct or colored is correct whereas over here of course you know you've got a whole different set of oh, rules yeah, we, we exactly exactly they're terrifying terms to everyone um, in modern day but over there it's just you know you have white skin you have brown skin you have black skin that was it Um but no, there was still a massive Boer um, influence. And so if you ever met one of them, they, they were interesting characters. They still had very white um, rights, I suppose, is the way mm. you put it. They felt that they were owned something.
0: If we can call it your mission, was most of that rooted within South Africa? Or did you get out of the country and go through the rest of the continent as well?
1: No. Well, I mean, we we travelled around, all the way around South Africa, um, so Swaziland and Lesotho, and then, you know, up to Mozambique briefly and all that sort of stuff. But I was based in Cape Town actually doing um, the work with uh, a company called Onsplek, which is a fantastic um, independent charity, which um, Onsplek... And directly translates as Our Place in Afrikaans And it was the only self-admitting charity in the whole of Cape Town Available for girls coming out of the sex trade So people who Mm. were actually, you know, coming out of that And and terrifyingly enough, I mean, it was children as young as six Um, You were
0: dealing with a lot of really heavy cases then
1: uh, yeah, it was kind of that. That—that's, I think, where it's probably my only attempt. Um, <laughs> There's no way media can
0: frighten you then. You've <laughs> seen that. Way. No,
1: I—I I, I always joke about the fact, and this is probably not going to come across well, but I tried to save the world, and I gave up and came and sold myself to the devil. <laughs> um, but not—not um, not in a bad way. It's just that I—I I really enjoy my job now. But it doesn't. Um, whilst it's whilst it's stressful and it's challenging it's not as emotionally draining as that experience was although it's hugely life-affirming and i don't regret any a, a second of it
0: so what made you then uh, i mean leave what you were doing there in south africa
1: um, I, I, I wasn't. I wasn't up to it. I was too. I got too emotionally attached to a lot of the children and all that sort of stuff. And you know, when we got to the stage where they were having to make choices based on how many how, the funding that we had as to who actually got um, HIV treatment, oh jeez, um, that was gut wrenching. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't up for it. Um, I wasn't strong enough. I was a 21 year old kid. I think I'd like to think that if I went back now, that I'd have a bit more of a stomach for it, but back then it wasn't something that I could really cope with and then I ran out of money that's the other thing so you know that's (laughs) that's the so after that was
0: done uh, you came back to uh, the UK Uh,
1: yes yeah I came back to the UK for a bit and then I moved to London um, and then that was when I kind of got into sort of my first, well, it wasn't really a marketing job. I was working, um, I saved money to go to Africa, uh, working, um, for the VP of American Express down in Brighton where my university was. Gotcha. And when I came back, um, I got offered um, a, an executive assistant job working for the VP of marketing for American Express up in London. So I kind of packed my bags and moved up there one day. I think they offered me the job on a Friday, and I started the next Monday. So I, really? complete, I had weekend to find a house and everything else, um, and then did that. And then they were really, really nice guys. But you know, I stayed with them for I think two years, and then I actually went over to work for their uh, agency, and that was my first proper media job. But, so what
0: brought you then into media, then
1: so my boss was fantastic I had a couple of bosses actually I was working for like three guys at um, and they were just all really passionate about it and I think that they realised that you know I, I potentially had more to offer in other areas rather than just organising their lives mm-hmm. um, and so they put me in touch with their um, agency which was TBG London um, Uh, which is a full-service, like, creative digital agency and everything else. And I interviewed them, and I kind of sidestepped to actually then look after the American Express um, account for them. Um, But, yeah, I just... I really enjoyed it. It came quite naturally um, to me, especially when you get organised, you know, Mm. because... Working for a VP, you tend to have to know everything. Yeah. So <laughs> you learn on the job. So then you're kind of in a good position. So what were some of your first clients then that you were uh, you were working with? Well, so American Express was my very, very first client when I first went over. And then after that, um, I had... Oh, goodness me. It's so long ago. Um, at TBG... Goodness, oh, goodness I can't even go back that far. That's crazy. I had that easy car and stuff so when, like that. When you had
0: uh, So when you started it, though, I mean... Were you doing digital, were you doing everything? Like, what were you planning on? Because I know over there, newspapers, even though they're losing money, it's not like over here, they really reign supreme.
1: Oh, no. So we were just a digital agency. But just we, digital, Yeah, okay. so we were doing full-service digital. So um, they had a really interesting model whereby they were the first guys to come to market and be like, we're going to offer a CPA uh, model to our clients. And so we set that CPA, and then if we drove underneath that, we just pocketed the difference. It was great. Um, so it worked for a, a small amount of time, and then, you know, obviously that, that model changed. But because of that, we had full rights for you know optimizing the creative building the templates booking the media reporting the whole lot so it was really hard working it was incredibly detail orientated and i learned so much my um, my mentor there a guy called david gilbert was probably one of the biggest reasons i got so passionate about it he was a fantastic bloke he's still in the industry back in london but
0: and so after that then you moved to havas
1: yeah, yeah. After that, it was um, a swift jump onto. I ended up working at um, Havas International. Um, I wasn't, I mean, it was a good job, but um, it wasn't my passion. I then got offered the BBC account on the. Um, okay. On, over on um, the Havas sort of UK side. So I went over to work on that and then worked with some fantastic people. Um, and then, yeah, ended up with the BBC, Penguin Books, uh, East Coast Rail, and they were like my babies. They were brilliant. Some of the best years.
0: Okay, so then I guess that took you through then your tenure in London and, and what brought you to Canada?
1: Um, I Don't mean, say the weather.
0: <laughs> it's minus 10 outside.
1: No, my um, I just spent nine years in London and, you know, going back to the fact that I'm a military. Well, moved around a hell of a lot when I was younger. I just had a classic case of itchy feet and just wanted to try something different. So, I went to um, I went to my CEO um, at the time and said, "Look, I love Habas, but I, I need a change. I'm going I'm going mad. Um, is there anywhere that you know you think might might might?" suit me and uh, he did some scouting around and there was a post in New York and there was a post in Toronto and I decided to take this one I thought that it would be more fun
0: had you ever been in Toronto before? Um, I came
1: when I was 11 years old to visit my uncle and went to a Blue Jays game and remember eating the biggest hot dog of my life that was my <laughs> entire memory of Canada but yeah
0: the team was probably winning back then. Too. Probably,
1: probably. <laughs>
0: nice. Okay, so you picked Toronto. Uh, you know That's actually pretty, pretty good of us, that they were all for, you know what, we want to keep you. Where do you want to go in the world? A lot of companies won't do that. It's kind of like, no, go back to your desk or here's the door.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, they, they, they're they actually getting even more involved than in it is now. Uh, now They've got like village placements. I think they're called village. Is it or kind like like part of it, the village. It's kind of like
0: doing an exchange where they're like, we'll send you to Yeah you're there for six months then you come back exactly and someone, that's, that's so, now, so
1: now they're doing that across the whole of north america europe and asia as well so you can do a six-month placement um so i know a couple of people in london who've already gone and done you know six months in uh, new york or chicago or stuff like that and they're opening it up um should be coming to canada fairly soon so yeah it's a good really good option
0: so let's talk a bit about the differences not just between uh havas toronto and havas uh back in london but Toronto and London. When you got here, what did you think?
1: Um, Well, I made the stupid mistake of coming here on the 10th of January... Um, oh, no. So I was straight into that epic winter of 2013 as and,
0: well, and it's only getting colder after that. Oh my <laughs> god! So, it's not it like was it's so
1: yeah, so I, I I don't think I'd ever experienced anything like it. You know, the whole nostril hair freezing thing. Oh my god, that was just horrendous. <laughs> which is followed um, up by a runny
0: nose. Yeah, absolutely. Which me. you can't So feel. sexy. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah, that's the way we roll here.
1: Uh, but no, I loved it. After oh, my first summer, I kind of fell in love. I think this place is incredible, and Canadians are just just su- such fun people. Really, really have enjoyed. My time here.
0: See, I'm the opposite. I'm like, I love Toronto, but I'm always trying to get back to London. I love really? that city. Maybe it's because you can go anywhere on the subway. Yeah. You can find like, yeah. one subway station that's got four lines going through it, and here we can't get one stop built but that's another story altogether.
1: But well, no but at the same time like the thing, the diff- major difference between like Toronto and and, and London is just, like so going on the underground and the subway and that sort of thing. As a woman if you're lug- if you're lugging around like a small child in a pushchair in London no one will offer to help you carry that child up the other up stairs. In Canada you'll have five men fighting each other to help you like carry that child in the buggy up the stairs. It's astonishing. Like it's okay. a totally different um thing. Not that I have kids but <laughs> I've seen it enough.
0: Yeah, I a couple months ago, I tried to offer my seat to a woman who was pregnant on the subway. Oh. I did. She took it. turned out not to be pregnant. Oh, my it was, God. It was a disaster. Oh, so, so
1: I've got this rule
0: on the subway now that I, if I get a seat, I put my face down in my book. If someone needs the seat, gladly give it up. They got to poke <laughs> me and say, I'm not doing that again. Because then you're stuck with them for like seven more stops and giving you the evil eye. You're like, why are you... Oh,
1: God, I took two stops to realize
0: why she was just giving me that dirty look.
1: Oh, that's not good. No, but
0: uh, let's jump back to it. The differences between not just Havas from Havas London, but like... I guess guess the the planning media, working with clients, how different is that?
1: Well, I think it's a hell of a lot more challenging, and I don't think that Canadian agencies get enough kudos for it, to be honest with you, because in London, you get the big budgets and all that sort of stuff, and you're kind of a priority market. Whereas, as a lot of the time, you know, in Canada, the agencies are servicing a hell of a lot of global clients where, you know, the budgets aren't as big, but the clients are just as demanding, And, you know, whilst you're, you know, working your butt off to try and sort of bring in new clients and give them the love they deserve, you know, you turn around and one of your biggest clients who's been happy for five years has had a global consolidation and so their business walks out the door through no fault of your own. So Mm -hmm. I think that it's a unique challenge um, for agencies just to manage sort of like the flow of clients through their agency and also, you know. Hold on to them as well. It's just it's uh, I, I, yeah. It's it's been exhausting for me. I just I, I haven't managed, managed to get my head around it really. But when it comes
0: to global clients like that, Havas would be working with like globally. Uh, do you guys jump in much with your counterparts in New York City, London, whatever, or do they kind of keep it pretty segregated? Where like you're to do your own thing. You don't need to talk to New York or London or anything like that.
1: No, it's to- do you know what? It's totally different for every single client set. Like I mean, I've literally I've just spent the last few days back in or down in New York. Um, Doing completely integrated uh, planning with the American team on Emirates, so oh, nice. it's just you know some some clients we're incredibly integrated with, other international accounts you know they they have an international sorry a global uh, like agreement, but we work with the lo- local clients on a local scale, so it just kind of depends to be honest with you on on, on the setup.
0: But oh, I wanted to ask you though about prospecting new clients. I'm a sales rep mm-hmm. and. It's easy for me to do it because even if it does get awkward on the other end when you're making that cold call, people with budgets anticipate people like me are calling because they're like, yeah, 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 he wants advertising money. We get it. But on your end, it's a little bit different because you're going into the client and you're actually – trying to push another agency out the out the door like how do you start apart from them putting out an open RFP saying come in and bid on our business mm-hmm. how else do you yeah. approach that
1: do you know what I'm probably the worst person for you to ask that too because I think it's a hell of a lot of just an answer. I know it's about it's about who you know I mean I, I've really struggled with it in the last couple of years because you know I haven't been in the industry over here that long and I don't know that many people and you know I do find that the people who seem to get ahead of the game are the ones that have been in the industry for a very long time and kind of know everyone because it's a really small world. You know, all of the clients probably well, you know, not all of them, but a lot of the clients, especially for the big, you know, budgets, have ex agency people. So they've worked with people in the past. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if they f- if they're an ex cassette guy, then you know they're gonna they're gonna speak to the ex cassette people they used to work with and give them the heads up. So it's it's kind of all about who you know, but other than that, it's just I think about trying to create work that you're proud of. If you can do that, and you've got a great portfolio, and you can start getting noticed, then people start to put you on their list.
0: Is there one thing that you've done in the industry that you kind of wear like a badge of honor, like one campaign or something like that?
1: Yeah, my 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 baby. Um, So East Coast Rail. um, It was the first like dynamic um, campaign that linked up um, dynamic, uh, well, bidding strategies on on um, programmatic platforms dynamic creative along with um, the client's API that fed in dynamic pricing as well so it yeah it's it was it, it won like it, it's just been the campaign that just kept on giving from an awards standpoint and the client has just yeah they've been absolutely delighted so
0: yeah. Are awards a big deal for you? Because I find with some people I speak to in the industry they're just kind of like no 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 results for the client but then there are other people who are kind of like con is my Oscars I want to be there on stage <laughs> I want to press release with my name.
1: Um, I don't think it's so much about being on stage or being at the awards. I think it's recognition of good work. Um, I got really excited that, you know, because I, I, I literally, I finished that campaign and then moved to Canada. So I've just been getting emails through going, oh, we've got another one. Oh, and we got another one. I'm like, damn it, why did I move? It's kind of like
0: winning the Oscar for Best Actress and then and saying, I, I quit, yeah. I'm retiring. No.
1: <laughs> yeah. But um, Yeah, it's, uh, no, I I don't think, I think it's, it's a great skill to write a brilliant award entry, but I think that there's a huge amount in that in whether you win or not. But I think ultimately, you know, I kind of sit on the fence with saying it's, it's about the results that it drives to the client, but it's about that piece of work that you, you are proud of it because it delivered something for people that you work for, that they were happy, you were happy and that you feel you did something a little bit exceptional.
0: Awesome. Tell you what, we're, at. We're, we're running out of time here, so I want to ask you one last question. Uh, if you had to leave media for something else and you had anything in the world in front of you, it was your oyster, uh, what would you be doing at this point? You can't go back to saving children. You've already done that. It's okay. got to be something new. Although children deserve to be saved. <laughs> I get why you're doing that.
1: Um, well, if, if I don't have any... Um problems with and, and we can pretend that I'm more intelligent than I am then I think I'd, I'd go and be a vet that sounds like You're back to me cool. you jump back in with animals yeah sorry. That,
0: now we're not saving children we're saving, saving animals. animals
1: instead yeah
0: this is perfect uh, Hannah <laughs> thanks, thanks so much for your time I really appreciate it uh everyone listening if you if you pick this up through social media go to soundcloud at soundcloud.com slash media podcast and follow us and hopefully we can get this thing off the ground to do more and more episodes with uh, different people Hannah thanks again for your time
1: brilliant thank you